From New York, this is Democracy Now. 中方近期已经多次向美方表明 China has in recent time made clear to the United States repeatedly its grave concern and stern position of resolutely opposing House Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. We are prepared to meet the challenge. As China issues stark warnings to the Biden administration over House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's proposed trip to Taiwan, Pentagon officials say they plan to increase movement of U.S. forces in the Indo-Pacific region if she visits. We'll get an update from Taiwanese-American journalist Brian Hugh in Taipei. Then there's a global debt crisis coming, and it won't stop at Sri Lanka. The whole nation, the whole country, is suffering like hell. The outlook is darkened significantly since April. The world may soon be teetering on the edge of a global recession, only two years after the last one. As the International Monetary Fund warns, soaring inflation and the war in Ukraine could push the world economy to the brink of recession. We'll speak with economics professor Jayati Ghosh, and as the Federal Reserve is announcing another rate hike to flight and fight inflation and soaring prices, we'll also look at what a recession could mean for workers in the United States with Marxist economist Richard Wolff. Remember the slogan, the one percent. Versus the 99 percent, you're seeing it in action under the wonderful, politely cleansed term "economic policy." All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The Washington Post reporting the Justice Department's investigating former President Trump as part of its criminal probe into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. As part of the probe, prosecutors have reportedly received phone records of key officials within Trump's circle, including his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. The Post also revealed two aides to former Vice President Mike Pence, his chief of staff, Mark Short, and lawyer Greg Jacob, recently testified before a grand jury. On Tuesday, Attorney General Merrick Garland spoke to Lester Holt on NBC's Nightly News. Garland refused to rule out charging Donald Trump. We intend to hold everyone, anyone who was criminally responsible for the events surrounding January 6th, for any attempt to interfere with the lawful transfer of power from one administration to another, accountable. That's what we do. We don't pay any attention to other、uh, issues with respect to that. So, if Donald Trump were to become a candidate for president again, that would not. Change your schedule, or or how you move forward, or don't move forward.、Uh, say again that、uh, we will hold accountable anyone who was criminally responsible for attempting to interfere with the transfer, legitimate, lawful transfer of power from one administration to the next. Part of the Justice Department probes reportedly focused on an effort by Trump's team to submit fake electors who would claim to the Electoral College Trump had won states where he'd actually lost. On Tuesday, the New York Times revealed details of internal emails sent by lawyers working on this effort. In one email, the Arizona-based lawyer Jack Willinchek described the plan as "quote kind of wild, creative." He wrote, "quote We would just be sending in fake electoral votes to Pence." 
so that someone in Congress can make an objection when they start counting votes and start arguing that the fake votes should be counted, unquote. In a follow-up email, he wrote, quote, alternative votes is probably a better term than fake votes. He then added a smiley face emoji to the email. In related news, the House January 6th committee has released an audio clip from testimony by former acting Defense Secretary Christopher Miller. He denied Trump ever gave a formal order to have 10,000 troops ready to be deployed to the Capitol on January 6, 2021, a claim that's been made by former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and others. In the clip, Miller was questioned by committee vice chair Liz Cheney. To be crystal clear, there was no direct order from President Trump to put 10,000 troops to be on the ready for January 6th, correct? No. Yeah, you're, that's correct. There was no direct—there was no order from the president. On Tuesday, Donald Trump gave his first speech in Washington since leaving office. He hinted he may run for president again. Oregon Governor Kate Brown has declared a state of emergency in 25 counties due to a scorching heat wave in the Pacific Northwest. In Portland, temperatures reached 102 degrees Fahrenheit Tuesday, breaking a new daily record, which had been set just two years ago. Forecasts show temperatures could rise above 110 degrees Fahrenheit in eastern Washington later this week. Meanwhile, in Missouri, at least one person has died in massive flooding after more than nine inches of rain fell in the St. Louis region. The storm broke a century-old record and came after a period when the region was experiencing an extended drought. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, at least 15 people have died after a series of protests targeting U.N. troops who have been stationed in Congo since 1999. On Monday, protesters in the city of Goma stormed the headquarters of the U.N. peacekeeping force known as MONUSCO. Some U.N. personnel had to be airlifted to safety. In a separate incident, one U.N. peacekeeper from Morocco and two U.N. police officers from India were killed in the city of Butembo. Protesters have accused the United Nations of failing to protect civilians from attacks by various armed groups in the region. They are tear-gassing us because we came to say that MONUSCO does not help us. They've been in Congo for 22 years, and nothing works. We came to demand our rights, but they shoot us with tear gas. Russia has announced it plans to withdraw from the International Space Station after 2024 and build its own orbital station. The United States and Russia have been the core stakeholders in the project, which has long been a symbol of cooperation between Washington, D.C. and Moscow after the Cold War. U.S. basketball superstar Brittany Griner's testifying today in a Russian courtroom as her trial continues. She's been jailed since February when she was arrested at the Moscow airport for possession of cannabis oil in her luggage. On Tuesday, Griner's legal team argued she had the cannabis oil for legitimate medical uses. A Russian narcologist was questioned by Griner's attorney, Maria Blagvalina. Based on what you just have said, did we understand you correctly that a professional athlete suffering from chronic pain could have been prescribed medical cannabis in the U.S., for example, in the U.S. as a therapy? I cannot testify for a doctor working in the United States because they have their own standards of diagnostics and treatment. But these types of treatments are prescribed. This is a fact. 
The family of slain Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akhla is calling on the United States to launch an independent investigation into her killing. On Tuesday, three members of her family met with Secretary of State Tony Blinken at the State Department. The Al Jazeera correspondent was shot dead in the occupied West Bank while covering an Israeli military raid in the Janine refugee camp. The United Nations, as well as numerous news organizations, have concluded she was shot by an Israeli soldier. Earlier this month, the U.S. said the bullet that killed her likely came from Israeli military gunfire, but stopped short of saying investigators had reached a definitive conclusion in her killing. The U.S. said her death was, quote, the result of tragic circumstances, unquote. Abu Akhla's family criticized the Biden administration's statement, saying, quote, for far too long, the United States has enabled Israel to kill with impunity by providing weapons, immunity and diplomatic cover. Impunity leads to repetition. We're here to do our part to ensure that this cycle ends, they said. The director of the Federal Bureau of Prisons, Michael Carvajal, came under intense criticism during a Senate subcommittee hearing Tuesday examining the horrific conditions inside the federal penitentiary in Atlanta, Georgia, where at least 13 people have died by suicide since 2012. Georgia Senator John Ossoff, who chairs the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigation, said the conditions inside the prison were, quote, abusive and inhumane. Inmates hanging themselves in federal prisons, addicted to and high on drugs that flow into the facilities virtually openly. And as they hang and suffocate in the custody of the U.S. government, there's no urgent response from members of the staff. Year after year after year. A former administrator at the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary, Terry Whitehead, also testified at Tuesday's Senate subcommittee hearing on conditions at the prison. I was shocked and appalled by the USP Atlanta big picture. On a daily basis, there were numerous policy violations which put the staff, inmates, and the local community in danger. For example, there were so many rats inside the facility dining hall and food preparation areas that staff intentionally left doors open so the many stray cats that hung around the prison could catch the rats. It is never a good idea to leave prison doors open. In other prison news, 28 women who were held in a county jail in Indiana have filed lawsuits over what's being described as a night of terror. The women say they were raped, groped, and assaulted by male prisoners inside the Clark County Jail after a jail official gave two male prisoners keys to the women's area in exchange for $1,000. The lawsuit also claims jail officials allowed the attack to go on for hours, even though it could be seen on surveillance video. Twenty women filed a lawsuit in June. Eight more filed a lawsuit this week. And the Senate has voted to advance a bill to provide as much as $76 billion in corporate subsidies to companies making semiconductor chips in the United States. Senator Bernie Sanders said he supported expanding domestic microchip production but opposed subsidizing the industry. Should American taxpayers provide the microchip industry with a blank check, blank check, of over $76 billion at the same exact time when semiconductor companies are making tens of billions of dollars 
in profits and paying their CEOs exorbitant compensation packages. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, Pentagon officials are reportedly planning to increase movement of U.S. forces in the Indo-Pacific region if House Speaker Nancy Pelosi makes her planned visit to Taiwan next month. China's reportedly issued stark warnings to the Biden administration over Pelosi's proposed trip, which was first reported last week that China's threatening to take strong measures if Pelosi travels to Taiwan. According to the Financial Times, China's privately warned the Biden administration it may respond militarily. President Biden will speak with Chinese leader Xi Jinping on Thursday amidst the fresh tensions over Taiwan. Pentagon officials told the Associated Press in a report published today that they're, quote, developing plans for any contingency and said, quote, fighter jets, ships, surveillance assets and other military systems would likely be used to provide overlapping rings of protection for Pelosi's flight to Taiwan and any time on the ground there. This comes as Taiwan held air defense drills in its capital Monday, as its military holds annual military exercises this week. If Pelosi's August trip happens, she would become the most senior U.S. official to visit Taiwan in quarter of a century. Pelosi postponed a planned trip to Taiwan in April after she tested positive for COVID-19. For more, we go to Taipei, Taiwan, to speak with Brian Hugh, a Taiwanese-American journalist, founding editor of New Bloom magazine, which covers youth culture and social movement politics. The magazine was founded after the 2014 Sunflower Movement. Brian, welcome to Democracy Now! Um, this is really coming to a head this week. Um, we'll see what happens when Biden speaks with the Chinese leader this week. Um, what do you make of Nancy Pelosi saying she's coming to Taiwan with a congressional delegation? So I think part of the issue then is regarding the timing, particularly in April, this would have been viewed in light of the Ukraine invasion to then drive from the point of U.S. support for Taiwan. However, now at this juncture, it is thought that it might be too late and that this would lead to Chinese aggression. The question is, what steps would China take? How far would they be willing to go? And these are questions that are up in the air. Uh, but then I think particularly one has seen visits from U.S. government officials to Taiwan. This is seen as a show of support, an attempt to send a signal to China. The question is, is this signal just intended to really stick it to China very quickly without actually benefiting Taiwan? Or is it something that should be best not done? And Brian, why do you think that the, the speaker decided to take this trip uh, at this time? Uh, obviously, she represents a district in California that has a large uh, Chinese American uh, population. But uh, what do you what do you feel is her reasoning and also the Biden administration's publicly saying it's not a good time for this? So this is very hard to judge. Uh, for example, it's possible that Pelosi is attempting to pressure Biden. Uh, because of the fact that Biden is scheduled to seek the seat. There may be concern that Biden will say something regarding Taiwan policy that would then perhaps cause further issues, and she wants to pressure him regarding that. 
Another possibility is because of the fact that the Republicans have intended to uh, send signals to their voters with support of Taiwan. For example, Mike Pompeo recently visited Taiwan in order to uh, launch as part of his preparations for a presidential bid. And so Pelosi may be seeking to answer to demographic that sees the Democrats as weak on China and then stepping up support for Taiwan may be intended then ahead of midterm elections. And in terms of the uh, the conflict that has been growing between uh, the Biden administration and the leadership in Beijing, uh, how do you see this affecting that in one way or another? So it is quite interesting because I think particularly from the Taiwanese standpoint, whenever there are talks between the U.S. and China, there's concern that Taiwan would be used as a playing card in some sense, a chess piece uh, that perhaps the U.S. would be willing to negotiate on Taiwan with China. Uh, This was a matter of concern under the Trump administration, and it is also the case under Biden. Biden has, in recent memory, more often made statements that seem to be supportive of Taiwan, for example, expressing commitment to defend Taiwan, where there is actually no such commitment. There are also other points, too, in which he has suggested agreement between the U.S. and China on Taiwan, when there is actually no such agreement. And so it's then very hard to say what would happen regarding talks between the U.S. and China and Taiwan would inevitably come from an issue. And this is further politically charged in the wake of the invasion of Ukraine, raising concerns about what would happen, for example, if China were to invade Taiwan and that could potentially entangle the U.S. And there are further concerns, too, as mentioned, regarding semiconductors, that Taiwan produces much of the world's semiconductors, and both the U.S. and China are reliant on Taiwan in this way that at a time of rising political and economic tensions between the U.S. and China. Taiwan is at the median point between the two, so to speak, regarding economics, politics, geopolitics, uh, technology. Um, even There have even been reports that Taiwanese semiconductors are even used in the Chinese missiles that are pointed at Taiwan, for example. On Tuesday, Taiwan conducted its annual Han Kuang exercises, a military exercise simulating an invasion of Taiwan off the northeast coast. This is the Taiwan president, Tsai Ing-wen, speaking aboard a warship. To all the brothers and sisters fighting on the waters, the excellent drill by everyone just now demonstrated the ability and determination by the soldiers of the Republic of China to defend the country. Let's continue to work hard and guard our homeland together. If you can talk about what this means, and also the fact that many who are supporting Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan are Republicans. As a Taiwanese-American, as we talked to you in the capital of Taiwan, in Taipei, if you can talk about the politics of this, both uh, as an American, but also um, as a Taiwanese who has often criticized both what you call Chinese imperialism and American imperialism. Right. And so it has longstanding been the case that Taiwan more often backs on Republicans who are seen as stronger on China, more willing to support Taiwan because they are tougher on China, whereas Democrats are perceived in a view that I think is a bit dated, that they are soft on China, they're willing to accommodate China. For example, the Asia pivot sometimes is misinterpreted as not an attempt to pressure China by containing it because of the fact that Taiwan was not always included in those plans, but just as an attempt to, for example, build stronger economic relations with China. There's even this kind of misinterpretation. Uh, but then I think particularly when you do have Republicans now, such as Mitch McConnell expressing support for a Pelosi visit, or Mike Pompeo even saying on Twitter that he would go with Pelosi to Taiwan, uh, Taiwanese people will then see this and see Republicans seemingly being very unified in their support of Taiwan, where Democrats between Biden and Pelosi seem to be more divided. 
And so in this sense, I think what is also worth noting is that if there are military threats from China, this would be directed at Taiwan. Taiwan is the one that stands to be caught in the crossfire between the U.S. and China. However, this is discussed not in terms of the damage to Taiwan or the threat Taiwan faces, the losses of Taiwanese lives, uh, but in terms of the potential to embroil the U.S. in conflict, which is definitely a concern. Uh, at the same time, Chinese military drills have continued for some time, and even reported on internationally, they're not usually perceived as a threat in Taiwan. Life goes on. Uh, Chinese military threats occur with such frequency on a near-daily frequency, it becomes background noise. And so I think people don't actually perceive necessarily that the stakes that a policy visit could have for geopolitics, because things seem as though they might just go on as usual. And there have been diplomatic visits from the U.S. recently. And, and you mentioned uh, Chinese uh, military exercises. There have been uh, on occasion also uh, periodically um, U.S. warships that have gone through the Taiwan Straits. And obviously uh, China has protested on numerous occasions that if you believe in a one China uh, policy, then uh, it, it argues that the Taiwan Straits are not international waters. The, of course, the U.S. and some other countries differ on that. And so uh, there have been periodic military uh, uh, ships of the U.S. that have gone through the straits. Could you comment on that as well? So I think the danger, particularly with the U.S. and China, is that they're caught in a pattern of tit-for-tat escalation. Whenever one side makes a move, the other feels it necessary then to reciprocate with a move of equal measure as a so of strength. And Taiwan then, particularly caught between the two, faces risks on both sides, faces risks from this escalation from both the U.S. and China. But I think what's important to note is that both the U.S. and China do not perceive themselves as acting as the aggressor, but only responding to the other. And so then the question is then regarding diplomatic signaling, what would China then interpret as a threat? And I think that there are other also regional considerations to keep in mind. For example, after the death of Japanese, former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, William Lai, the vice president, visited Japan to mourn Abe. And this was the highest ranking visit by a Taiwanese official in 50 years. And so I think China particularly also does want to send a signal regarding other regional alignments, particularly regarding Taiwan, the U.S., and Japan. What about a blockade scenario? And also, uh, because there's what they call a CODEL, a congressional delegation going, and it's the highest-level person leading it, uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in 25 years, the Pentagon um, will be forced to deploy uh, more weapons to the region, uh, more military equipment or ships. Um, this just increasing the tension naturally in that region and could lead to some kind of mishap. So this is kind of interesting as well, because one of the considerations regarding how much security to send for a Pelosi visit is that you don't then want to scare China into thinking this is pretext for conflict or uh, intimidating uh, force in that sense. I think another part of the politics is regarding how this is perceived. Uh, there have been delegations that are sent that seem much more strongly Republican than Democrat. And so then framing the visit as bipartisan is something that could occur, particularly after McConnell's recent comments. Uh, but then with regards to Pelosi visiting, that I think is particularly charged before elections are coming up later this year. Uh, it's a question, though, regarding how China would react, particularly because of the fact that Chinese President Xi Jinping is expected to obtain a third term in office, which is unprecedented, at the 20th National Congress later this year. And so, for example, would he want stability for not having a conflict breakout in order to secure that? Or would he want something to happen that he can, for example, claim an accomplishment or even a distraction from his efforts at expanding power? I think that's also another uh, factor in this. And also, could you talk about how the government in Taiwan is going to be uh, 
uh, reacting to the visit? Will she uh, will she be received by uh, uh, official government leaders uh, uh, other than uh, the 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 the, uh, the parliamentary equivalent uh, in uh, in Taiwan? So that's actually a very good question as well. I think what is noteworthy is the Thai administration has not made a politically strong statement on the possibilities of the visit. Uh, I think because of the fact that it does appear that, at least publicly, Pelosi and Biden are in conflict, the Thai administration does not want to take sides here for fear of offending one side or the other. Uh, but then it is possible that if a visit were to take place, the Thai administration would actually play it low-key. Uh, what's noteworthy about the Biden administration is that it has differed from the Trump administration in so far how it conducts visits. These are usually done much more low-key. They're announced after this official is already in Taiwan, prevent news from getting out, from uh, preventing the window of opportunity for China to react and so forth. But it's too late in this case. But that being the case, it is also possible the Time Nation would try to be much more low-key about it. Uh, in the past, the Time Nation did try to trumpet the uh, building of ties with the U.S., particularly under the Trump administration, because of the fact that this could be then used as a domestic political achievement, saying that we have strengthened ties with the U.S. But in this case, it might not happen. Uh, how much of the red carpet we rolled out for Pelosi, I don't know. When Mike Pompeo came to Taiwan, Taipei 101, the tallest skyscraper in Taiwan, once the tallest skyscraper in the world, lit up for, for Pompeo. Would Pelosi see a similar welcome? I think that really depends. But that also then will color the perception of whether Taiwan is leaning very strongly towards Republicans in terms of support and who it is banking on. And I think that particularly then the question is, what about other political forces in the U.S. that could perhaps support Taiwan? We just have 30 seconds, but the messages of both Xi to, Bra to Biden and Biden to Xi when they speak on Thursday, what do you think they should be? So Taiwan will definitely come up as an issue, but I think then it's still an opaque question. Particularly Biden has a history of misstatements on Taiwan or other key issues afterwards. I think Biden will probably try to play down tensions, but it's also possible the talk will break down. And so I think this is really remains to be seen. Brian Hugh, I want to thank you for being with us. Taiwanese-American journalist, founding editor of New Bloom magazine, speaking to us from Taipei, Taiwan. Next up, there is a global debt crisis coming, and it won't stop at Sri Lanka. We'll speak with economics professor Jayati Ghosh and then with Marxist economist Richard Wolff about uh, inflation, about recession, what all this means for workers in the United States. Stay with us. Ben 
Harper here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. The International Monetary Fund warned Tuesday soaring inflation and the war in Ukraine could push the world economy to the brink of recession if immediate action is not taken to ease a worsening global economic crisis. The IMF's chief economist, Pierre-Olivier Gorincha, spoke in Washington, D.C. during the launch of the IMF's quarterly World Economic Outlook Report. The outlook has darkened significantly since April. The world may soon be teetering on the edge of a global recession, only two years after the last one. Multilateral cooperation will be key in many areas, from climate transition and pandemic preparedness to food security and debt distress. Amid great challenge and strife, strengthening cooperation remains the best way to improve economic prospects for all and mitigate the risk of geoeconomic fragmentation. The IMF expects inflation to keep rising, with lower-income countries in the global south facing higher inflation rates than wealthy nations, as well as some of the worst impacts of rising food and living costs. People around the world are taking to the streets in response. In Sri Lanka, months of massive protests in response to the country's economic meltdown forced the former president, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, to resign. He was accused of bankrupting Sri Lanka with massive corruption and economic mismanagement. Many also blame decades of neoliberal policies and forced dependency on international loans from the IMF and the World Bank for leading to Sri Lanka's current economic catastrophe. Um, Sri Lanka, um, Sri Lankans continue to face dire shortages of food, fuel, and medicine. The new leader, Raniel Rekramasinga, was sworn in last week and has been overseeing debt bailout talks for Sri Lanka with the IMF. Protesters gathered in Sri Lanka's capital, Colombo, last week after the Sri Lankan parliament chose Wickramasinga as the country's new president. We won't back down. We won't let this be. We won't settle for any less. Because at the same time, this is exactly what we're fighting for. We're fighting to not settle for any less, but and to not be comfortable in the uncomfortable, but fight for what we deserve. And, and the people deserve to get their basic necessities. They deserve fuel. They deserve transportation. They deserve... Anything that, you know, these citizens of Sri Lanka uh, needs. But it's not just Sri Lanka. This comes as global skyrocketing inflation is pushing many other countries to the brink of an economic collapse, including Pakistan, Nepal, Nigeria, Ethiopia, Panama and Argentina, which in March agreed to a new multi-billion dollar 30-month debt repayment arrangement with the IMF. Argentinians have been leading massive protests in recent weeks against worsening poverty, unemployment and soaring living in food costs in the country. They also denounced the government of President Alberto Fernandez over its handling of Argentina's $44 billion debt with the IMF. This is a protester in Buenos Aires. 50% of the population is below the poverty line, and the rates of severe poverty are increasing more and more. The inflation for food products is at 8%. They have just changed the Minister of Economy, and nothing has changed. Well, for more, we go to New Delhi, India, where we're joined by Jayati Ghosh, the economics professor at University of Massachusetts Amherst, who writes about all of this in her Guardian piece, There is a Global Debt Crisis Coming, and It Won't Stop at Sri Lanka. Uh, Professor Ghosh, welcome back to Democracy Now! Explain. 
Well, you know, really what we are seeing is something that we should have seen coming even more than a year ago. And many of us have been warning since then that the COVID pandemic destroyed developing countries' economies much more significantly than it did in the rich world, that these countries were not able to bring about the fiscal response that was required, that they're still facing the pandemic because of the vaccine apartheid and inequity that we have seen. And then they are being ravaged by the impact of the food and fuel price increases. I also just want to mention, you know, these, the Ukraine war is generally blamed for all of these big, massive increases in the prices of food and fuel. But that's only part of the explanation. A very large role has been played by profiteering of big companies and financial speculation in the commodities markets. And these are things that can easily be controlled by regulation. So rich country governments are choosing not to control that. They're blaming supply shortages and the war when more than half of the inflation actually comes from these other forces. And then they're doing nothing about this massive emerging debt crisis, which has been writing on the wall for a year at least. So unless the G7 governments, and then I suppose by extension the G20, get their act together and decide that they will make immediate changes and do some immediate actions, we are going to see an absolute perfect storm of unrest, instability, economic disaster, hunger, starvation, and all kinds of unpleasant social and political consequences. But usually, uh, Professor, the, uh, the reaction of the international lending groups is just to, even when they do a, a debt restructuring, is just to roll over the debt uh, for, uh, uh, for additional years. It's not really to take the burden off of these countries. Uh, I'm wondering, what, uh, what do you see as uh, how the IMF and other international lenders are reacting to the current crisis? You know, that's exactly the problem. What was done during the pandemic was a debt moratorium. That is to say, you don't have to pay interest payments now for a year or a year and a half or something. They're all due now. They didn't change the value of the debt. Now, debt restructuring, that is reducing the debt, uh, writing off a part of the debt, is something that happens regularly in all credit markets. It's happening in the United States as we speak. It's happening in India. Large corporations regularly write off significant parts of the debt. Banks actually assume they're never going to repay. This is not being done for sovereigns, and that's a mess. It's a disaster. Now, it's true that the bilateral debt or the IMF and World Bank debt is only a part, in fact, not even half of the total debt of emerging countries. But right now, what you need to do is have a global system for debt restructuring and force a debt write-off. We know they will never be able to repay a large part of this debt. Enforce a significant debt relief that involves a cutting down of the absolute values of debt. It was done for Germany in the 1950s. For some reason, it can't be done to developing countries today. Now, could you talk as well about the the changes that have occurred in this uh, in terms of this crisis in previous debt crises uh, uh, in the past? It was largely the uh, multilateral lending organizations that were central players. But now, of course, in recent years, the People's Republic of China has become an increasingly huge creditor to many uh, developing countries. And most of its agreements are uh, completely bilateral agreements just between China and the government of a particular country. Uh, how has that affected the ability of the developing countries to reach sort of global settlements or, or, uh, or uniform settlements with their creditors? 
I think China is usually unfairly blamed for this. China accounts for only 10% of the debt of Sri Lanka, for example. And for most of the countries in distress, it's not more than 10 or 15% of the debt is from China. The big problem is private creditors. It's the bond markets. It's big multilateral international financial institutions, most of which are based in the US and Europe. They are the ones that are really responsible now the, the mutual funds, the pension funds, they're the ones that are responsible for a large part of the debt. So it's private creditors that are really now, if you like, turning the screws on these countries. And the IMF, the World Bank and the G7 are sitting back and letting this happen. What you really need to do is enforce a debt resolution mechanism in which these private creditors and China have to be involved. And so just blaming China or saying, you know, China is the one that's responsible, that's simply false. In fact, the real problem is that there are private creditors who are free riding on the system, assuming that all of their debts will be repaid, in demanding complete and rigid repayments, and there is nothing to prevent them from continuing to do this. Whereas you can think about regulations, you can think about buying up the debt of many of these countries, the multilateral system can do it. There are ways in which to get a debt resolution. This is just completely lack of political will. It's not because we don't know what to do. So why don't you lay out what should be done? And you can name names when you talk about these private creditors. And what countries uh, do you feel uh, can weigh in, especially the role of the United States? Well, the United States definitely is responsible for, I would say, you know, that is to say institutions based in the United States are responsible for more than half of the private debt that is now plaguing emerging markets and that, uh, where they're facing crises. The most obvious solution is to have some kind of a global debt authority that will buy up distressed debt. At the moment, you allow private uh, equity funds, you, pro you allow uh, what are called vulture funds to buy up this debt and then do everything possible to extract it from the poor countries involved. Why don't we have an international agency that is buying up this distressed debt and basically writing it off? That's what governments do routinely within their own countries. They have a so-called bad bank. So that's the first step. The second is that the IMF and the World Bank need to write off their own insistence on repayments. The IMF even has an obscene system of demanding fees, additional uh, surcharges on countries that are deeply in debt and cannot repay which is frankly un unacceptable. It should immediately abandon that practice. The bilaterals should be actually uh, giving up on some of their debt. They will not notice it. There has been a big expansion of SDRs in the last year in 2021, $650 billion worth. 400 billion of that went to the rich countries. None of them has used it. They don't need to use it. Why not just release those SDRs for debt relief? It's a fairly straightforward thing. It only requires a government action. It doesn't require going to U.S. Congress. It doesn't require anything. It requires a pure government action because the fiscal cost of it is very, very low. It's less than 1% even. So why not do these creative measures, which are all feasible, if you can somehow manage the debt of these developing countries? And if you have a fresh issue of SDRs, the developing countries... They get a small proportion of it. But for them, it's an absolute lifeline. It's an emergency saving packet, which otherwise they will be starving their people of food and basic food, fuel and necessities. So these are straightforward solutions. 
Yet we find the IMF, the World Bank, they have they come to these meetings, they wring their hands and they say things are terrible, it's very dire, there's going to be a crisis. Well, for God's sake, we have multilateral institutions because they're supposed to do something about a crisis, not just to complain about it and say, oh, it's all terrible. I, I wanted to ask you also, as the United States, as the um, as the Federal Reserve continues to raise interest rates here in the United States, uh, the U.S. dollar is becoming stronger and stronger versus other world currencies because more and more people are fleeing now into investors into U.S. treasuries. Uh, how does this affect uh, the debt crisis itself? Because aren't uh, uh, quite a few of these Loans sometimes denominated that have to be paid back in uh, equivalent U.S. dollars, not in the, the currencies of the different countries? Absolutely. That's the real problem. The problem is that these are countries that have borrowed in foreign currency debt. They borrowed to uh, provide for imports and so on. And what's happened now, all of this capital flow, we know that it's very volatile. It moves at the slightest hint of any kind of problem. And even when there's not a problem, if a neighboring country has a problem, then the capital moves out of the other developing country. So as the U.S. is raising its interest rates, this has happened so many times in the past. Every time it raises interest rates or tightens its own monetary policy, capital flies back to safety. And that means that the currencies of all these countries depreciate, which makes that debt and the repayment even more expensive. So you're already losing foreign exchange because your exports are down, your tourism uh, uh, revenues are down, your remittances are down. You are paying more for your food and fuel imports. And then your currency has depreciated so that the repayment value of your debt in domestic currency terms is that much higher. So you're being hit at from all sides. Even when food prices are coming down, like wheat prices are currently down from two months ago, it's higher in developing countries because their currencies have depreciated in this intervening period. So the U.S. monetary policy and fiscal policy has huge implications for the rest of the world. Unfortunately, no one in the U.S. administration, not the government, not the Congress, thinks about the implications for the rest of the world. And They're only looking at what happens in the U.S. And Professor Ghost, yes, what, it is devastating. what does this mean in Latin America, where you have, uh, what, in Argentina, more than half the children now living in poverty? Uh, in Panama, massive protests like there have been in Argentina. Um, this uh, country, one of the wealthiest in Central America, but extremely unequal. Yes. You know, I, the thing is, these things hit the headlines when there are public protests or when there is some extreme case. But across the developing world, in large parts of Latin America, but also in Africa, in developing Asia, the, things are really dire. There, I mean, in India, I can tell you the food situation is horrific. We are having child undernutrition levels that have shown that we've gone back two decades in terms of the kinds of nutrition for mothers and children. We've got starvation level diets now for about a one third of our population. We have 72 percent of the country unable to afford what the FAO considers to be a nutritious diet. And this is just in India, which is supposedly a lower middle income country. The kinds of devastation that we're seeing across the world are only going to hit U.S. headlines when they translate into very open protests. But they are generating not just extreme misery, but they're also generating the seeds of instability and protest that will have devastating consequences everywhere, including in the U.S. 
Jayati Ghosh, I want to thank you for being with us. Economics professor, University of Massachusetts Amherst. We'll link to your Guardian article. There is a global debt crisis coming, and it won't stop at Sri Lanka. She's speaking to us today from New Delhi, India. When we come back, we look at inflation, the possibility of recession here, and economic policy overall in the United States with the Marxist economist Richard Wolff. Stay with us. Handsome Boy Modeling School. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. This week, the United States is facing what Politico calls a Category 5 economic storm, as analysts debate whether the U.S. economy is in a recession and how to respond. Today, the Federal Reserve's announcing another interest rate hike, which it says will help fight against inflation and bring down prices that are up by some 9 percent since last year as inflation reaches a 40-year high. This week also marks 13 years since the U.S. last raised its federal minimum wage to $7.25 an hour in 2009, which is the longest time without a raise since the federal minimum wage was first implemented during the Great Depression. To make sense of what all this means for working people, we're joined by the Marxist economist Richard Wolff, emeritus professor of economics at University of Massachusetts Amherst, visiting professor at the New School, and the founder of Democracy at Work, host of Economic Update and author of several books, including The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Professor Wolf, welcome back to Democracy Now! Um, explain what's happening in, these in this country, and also, if you can uh, also explain, define all your terms, from inflation to recession, so all people have access to this. Good. Thank you very much, Amy, for the opportunity. Uh, let me try to be as brief as I can. Over the last 30 to 40 years, we have experienced here in the United States a radical redistribution of wealth and income. All manner of economists from all perspectives have done the research. It's all very well known. That has caused epoch-changing uh, problems here in the United States that our political headlines are full of literally every day. But the last four years have been a cap on that process that really requires taking a deep breath. Number one, our society was unprepared for and did not well manage a pandemic. 
that it could have been and should have been much better prepared for, as many other countries were, who don't have our wealth or our medical system. About the same time, we had an economic crash. Over half the labor force in this country lost their job for a few weeks or the entire time of 2020 and 2021. We've had uh, viral catastrophes before. We've had economic crashes. We never had them at the same time. That was a body blow to a working class that, as I said, has been suffering for 30 to 40 years. As if that weren't enough, we then had, when we thought we might be out of the worst of the crash and the pandemic, now in the last year, as you just pointed out, we have whacked our working class with an inflation. And make no mistake, what an inflation is, very simple, is a general rise in prices. That's all it means. Not all prices go up the same, not all prices go up, but in general, prices rise. And obviously, as any child will understand, if the prices go up, that hurts most people in the middle and people at the bottom, because they're the ones with the least amount of money to pay the rising prices. It's a discrimination against the middle and the bottom, that is the vast majority. But perhaps what's not understood is who raises the prices. That little economics detail is so often lost. Employers, the class of employers in our society, that's who sets the prices. Employees are excluded from that activity. Employers in the United States are 1% of the population, if that. Those of us who have to take the prices they choose to raise, we are the 99%. And there's no democracy in allowing 1% of the people to set prices that 99% of the people are forced to pay for food, clothing, shelter, and all the rest. So damaging is this inflation and so unfairly damaging that the government is called upon, as often happens, when the private capitalist system lurches into one extreme or another, the government is called in, please save the system. In our society, our central bank, which is what the Federal Reserve is, in other countries it's called the Bank of France or the Bank of England, uh, historical reasons we don't call it the Bank of the US, we call it the Federal Reserve. They come in and they are asked, please fix it. And then a kind of magic happens. The Federal Reserve can be honest, admit that its job, which by the way is written into its charter, price stability. That's a fancy phrase for saying, don't let prices go up too much. So clearly, when you have an inflation, the central bank, the Federal Reserve, has failed to maintain price stability. So what is it proposing to do? It's proposing to come in and raise interest rates. As you pointed out, later today, we will have the announcement of the latest raising of the interest rates. What's the idea here? The idea is to make everybody who owes money 
worse off. Basically, you're going to have to pay more in servicing your debt, in paying off your interest. Your monthly credit card bill will go up because if you carry uh, a credit, a debit there because you've been using your card, they can charge you higher interest now. If you were thinking of buying a car, it's going to cost you more. If you were thinking of borrowing money, a mortgage, we call that, to, to own a home, it's going to cost you more. So the idea is by making everything more expensive that involves debts, and in our economy now, debt is everywhere, it, making it more expensive, m masses of people, and who again? The middle and the bottom, who are the worst hit by this, they will have to cut back expenditures because they're having to pay more, for example, on their credit card every month, and that will hopefully dissuade the employers from further increases of uh, prices because you have really whacked the mass of the consumers who can't afford it. Notice in each case that whatever the problem of the economy is, the employers are in the position to raise the prices, to cut the supplies, to, to do all the things they do, while the rest of us are forced to be passive and to pay for the entirety of this. If I can make a final comment, this is a, not a sustainable arrangement, not in the sense of ecological unsustainability, but in social unsustainability. You cannot continuously assault the working class for 40 years of redistributed wealth, then a pandemic, then an economic crash, then an inflation, and now tell them falsely, by the way, that the only way to deal with that is to whack them again with a rising interest rate. It's ironic that Richard Nixon, a conservative Republican president, back in August 15th of 1971, went on the television in our country and said, we have a, tel a terrible inflation, which we did because it constantly comes back. And what I'm going to do, said Mr. Nixon, is declare a price wage freeze. As of tomorrow morning, any business that raises its prices, we will arrest you. Any union that demands or gets higher wages, ditto. Look, it was an extreme measure. Guess what? It worked. The, we can have a debate about it. But the ironic reality that today we are all talking from the Biden administration and the Republicans as well, as if interest rate increases is the only thing to do. This is a manipulation of a people that has no justification and is more extreme now than I have seen in my lifetime as a professor of economics here in the United States. But Richard, I'd like to ask you: uh, During the the pandemic, in the in the in the the worst times of the pandemic, the government unleashed an enormous amount of, or borrowed an enormous amount of money to uh, tide the society over. Both, uh, obviously, uh, the capitalists and the employers got a huge share of the of the bailout money, but so did many Americans. And to the point that the United States now, as I as I understand it, it's it's debt. It's one of the biggest debtor nations in the world, 137 percent of GDP in terms of U.S. debt. Yet the U.S. dollar continues to be stronger uh, uh, th than other currencies in the world economy. Can you explain why how that's happening? 
Sure. Um, the basic answer is the following. The rest of the world, uh, as your previous uh, interviewee made uh, very clear, uh, the rest of the world is in such terrible shape that before we celebrate the strong dollar, we have to face the reality that the reason loose money, mobile money around the world is leaving uh, countries in Asia, Africa, Latin America and Europe to come to the United States is not because we are in good shape. We aren't. It's because they are in awful shape and they don't know what to do. And the United States for the last 75 years has been the safest place. And they look around the world and they say, OK, we better cash in our euros or our yen or whatever else they have. Hold on to dollars. And remember, to buy a treasury security these days, which is what they do is how they do that, is to agree to lose money. Because the inflation being 9%, the Treasury doesn't pay you 9% if you buy a Treasury security these days, which means you're putting money in the United States, you're buying a Treasury that may pay you 2, 3, 4, 5% if you're very lucky, but that will be less of an increase over the next year than the cost of everything that a dollar buys. So you're actually losing money by doing that. And it tells you how bad the global economy is now uh, for everybody that they would come to the United States. And last point, be very careful. This can change on a dime. And if problems arise here in the United States, which the way we have treated our working class guarantees all we don't know is the forms that that crisis will take. Will it be an extreme Republican administration? Will it be a further surge in the unionization drives and the strike drives that we're seeing mushrooming across the United States? But the minute that mobile money from around the world that has come in and strengthened the doctor, dollar, gets a sense that the United States is spinning out of control, then that money will leave every bit as fast as it came here. And we'll be looking at a dollar dissolving on us. And we'll be talking about that. And in terms of the, uh, the, the continued squeeze, as you've been saying, for the past 40 years on the working class and the middle class, it seems that in, in many countries around the world, that's leading more and more toward uh, of fascist movements and uh, and right wing movements than it is to strong uh, uh, left wing or socialist movements. I'm wondering your sense of what the future holds. Well, I think what we're seeing in, in my own sense of and I follow it quite closely. And, and we have about a minute and a half left. Yeah. <laughs> particularly in Europe is that you're seeing the fruits of the last 75 years. We've lived in a country that has been beset by the Cold War, that, that is, is lost in this notion of a great struggle between capitalism and socialism in which you can't allow anything on the left to get very far without repression of by the government or without an unfair treatment in the media. So I'm not so surprised that as the situation unravels, the first instinct of people is to be responsive to the right, which has been able to function in the Western world much more freely than the left has. But I don't find that at all surprising. I think when the people of this country realize how few solutions the right wing has 
look at what Mr. Trump didn't achieve in all the things he promised, then you'll see an appreciation that maybe we ought to try the left. The crucial question is whether the left will be courageous enough to say what's going on and to offer a real alternative. Well, Richard Wolf, I want to thank you so much for being with us, uh, Professor Emeritus of Economics at University of Massachusetts, now visiting professor at the New School here in New York, founder of Democracy at Work, host of Economic Update, author of a number of books, including The Sickness in the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Stay safe. Wear a mask.